and my house, I've got plans now, and, I'm, and I, I plan ahead. I'm thinking, when they become teenagers, this is my plan. It's probably going to be thrown out the window, but I don't care. I've got a plan, and I'm, gonna, I, I'm planning. You know, I'm, I'm going to do something. And so in the church, we do need to be prepared for rebellion in, in, within our body, within the congregation. What are we going to, to do about it? It's hard to find a balance there, but when we th- think about this and we're looking at the church and the problems that go on here, discipline is needed in the church today, and there are a lot of places where this does not exist, where people can come into churches and live however they want to. I've heard of congregations in the brotherhood and out, and usually outside is even worse, um, you know, within the churches of Christ and then outside in the denominational world, where you will have people who come to church and then they are living with someone else outside of marriage. And the congregation knows about it, and people know about it, the families know about it, and whether someone has some money there in the congregation, if that's involved, there's other kind of politics that get uh, pulled into that, the things that go on within churches. Uh, But again, uh, that kind of behavior is wrong, and it's something that would have to be addressed uh, immediately. And we're going to see a list of those things mentioned tonight. So right now we're going to get into our text And we're going to look at most of the verses here and read them. But I think it's very important that we start right here in 1 Corinthians 5. And let's go over and read verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Very strong words, and I think something very lacking in congregations today. Here's some observations I see here. First of all, we have a man here who's taken his father's wife. Not even accepted among the nations, among the pagans in the ancient world. This was, you know, again, looked down upon. I don't know how the world would be that today. I guess most of it would still say that's a very evil thing, but I don't know what to expect from the the state of the world now and and what would be approved here. They'd be like, well, the man loves his stepmom. I guess it's okay. You know, that that might be some reasoning even today. Uh, But back then and in this time, even though they're so accepting of many forms of sexual morality, here this man is doing this. Now, the word here for sexual morality in your text, again, is the Greek word porneia. It means all, um, all sex outside of marriage, extramarital sex. And so this man is having an affair with his father's wife. Man having his father's wife. All right, and then we have here uh, that the Christians, they're not mourning about this. You know, if you've got sin in the congregation, at least the first thing you're going to do is say, this is horrible. It breaks my heart that so-and-so over here is living this way. He's coming into the congregation. Everybody knows that he's doing it. You would expect that people would mourn over it. The other word that's mentioned here is the word arrogant, uh, in Greek meaning literally puffed up or inflated. 
Paul says, are you inflated? Are you puffed up? Are you so arrogant? Is it doesn't bother you anymore? You don't mourn over this sin? If they were mourning over the sin, they would at least say something out of love to this person. But it appears that they're not even doing that. And, and, and that goes along with the, the, the culture there at Corinth. With my kids, you know, it's, I think I was a little bit more stricter. I think Rachel says much more strict in my discipline when they were younger and when I first had Megan. Megan uh, got the most discipline, I think. And then Haley's probably getting the least, but I don't know. Hope you got your Bibles. We're going to continue in our study of 1 Corinthians. And you're going to find out tonight things are about to get a lot more interesting. Our first four chapters were in many ways kind of abstract, trying to figure out what Paul was combating and speaking against. And tonight we're going to look and see some of the problems that are going on in Corinth and how he says to respond to them. I encourage you tonight, if you can find me a better title for our lesson, let me know. I'll give you uh, 25% of the profits. Your title will be on there. But I do need a better one. I was looking at this and I couldn't break it down, which is nothing. But when I post it online, actually recently I, th- I feel like I've been turning it up a little bit more. And I know Rachel has too. Prostitution in the temples were known to be in Corinth. By this time it might have been done away with. There's some debates among, the scholars, uh, among scholars about that or whether it's still there. But the the idea of a woman being called a Corinthian woman still had the idea with it that that means she would be a loose woman. That was a, a phrase and a, a speech that goes back into ancient Greeks that a Corinthian woman was that kind of woman. And so the city of Corinth was known for that immorality. Um, Paul here has to lead and he pronounces judgment. And today you'll have people say, oh, you can't judge me. Paul says here, I've already made the judgment. The judgment is... And he makes the judgment by the inspiration and the direction of God and by the inspiration of his spirit. And he is able to proclaim to this church, this is wrong. He says right here, again, look at verse 3. For though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who's done such a thing. Now he's going to explain a little bit more about judging, how Christians are to judge. There is a right, a right way to judge. We don't judge by our own measure. That's what Jesus condemned in Matthew chapter 7. But Jesus also said in John 7 and verse 24 that we judge not by appearance but with righteous judgment. And that righteous judgment, we see a part of it being applied right here in this congregation. And then we know, I note this. And two things to note here. This probably could be two different points. The church here is to do it as an assembly. Now, sometimes discipline goes like this. So-and-so over here is sinning. The elders find out about it. The leaders in the congregation, they go and they address it privately, and they should. Let's, let's try to resolve it first like that. Take another step. If they keep openly doing that, we, we've got one-on-one. We've got some others that come along with them. And I think uh, we have a good example from that, Matthew chapter 18, from Jesus. Now, I think Jesus is specifically talking about a personal offense there. But the principle he lays down in going by one and then going with two or more witnesses and then withdrawing um, is still good to apply in these circumstances. So the church here, he says, as you're assembled together, because this man is openly living in sin, he must be put away. He must be removed from the congregation. I want you to think about it in this way as well. If someone comes into the church and they're teaching false doctrine, what do we do? The Bible says to avoid them, withdraw from them. Romans chapter 16, 
Stay away from them. If someone's coming into the body and they're living openly in sin, whether they're slandering others or extorting somebody, these other sins that are going to be mentioned here in the text, you are to withdraw from them. And it is to be done in the assembly. And it mentions the assembly as you're gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. And I can get into other details tonight as we go and look at other scriptures when the church is gathered in the name of Christ. But we're talking about the assembly, the assembly where you're going to have the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. This is when you do it. And sometimes today it's everything is kept behind closed doors, but it is to be noted before the whole body. I think that's very apparent here. The second thing here is the phrase that we see Paul says, deliver this man to Satan. Well, that means, this seems harsh. And it also says here to, and, and, and another way of saying, for the destruction of the flesh. And I'll comment more on that later, hopefully I will. But destruction of the flesh is kind of the idea of putting, it is the idea of putting the flesh to death. Putting the body of sin to death. And Paul's going to tie this in with execution under the Old Testament. And you, you might not pick up on that, but if you look at verse 13 and you look at the verses behind it, you're going to see that. And so, what is guilty of death right here? This man is, is, is death. He's dead in his sins, coming into the congregation, and he needs to be delivered over to Satan. Now, this phrase is also in 1 Timothy 1, 19-20, where Paul says he has uh, specific men who have been reviling and that he has given them over to Satan. What does that mean? He's no longer associating with them. He's no longer has fellowship with them. He's withdrawn from them. We can't give the impression to others that this person is living in a right life. And I think this is very important to apply. And I think there's, a, there's principles here that we might take into our own home and to our own family where we see the need to do that. I'll leave that to you as you think about it and think about further application of it. But I think some have seen this and they thought, okay, I see the destruction of the flesh here. The idea is we want this man to be restored. Yes, that's what we ultimately want. But if he doesn't repent, he cannot be in the body and lead anybody else astray. Just like a false teacher. Someone coming in and saying anything against Christ and against God that's unbiblical. You cannot have that. So what example does Paul set here for reacting to sexual sin and all open sins within the church? Does he seem like he's emotional about it? Does it seem like it convicts him? Does it appear that he's mourning over this? Yes. It should affect us the same way. And I think that's what's striking today when people don't like it where we as Christians are offended and we mourn for our own society as it goes more and more into immorality. Yes, we're going to mourn. No, we're not going to like it. And, and it's okay for our emotion, our hearts to be behind that. Do churches today ever allow members to live openly in sin? We see that without correction from the leadership. Yes, that takes place. It took place in the first century. It's applicable to us today that we need to learn that we need to disassociate from any so-called brother who is living in that kind of lifestyle. Now, I'm just going to start here for a minute. Some ask the question, what if it's in my family? I know things get real complicated when it's someone in your, in your family. Um, and we can get into more details of that. But uh, my personal application is that there's going to be no spiritual fellowship with me 
and that person and my family. Now, I might see them at Thanksgiving and other times, um, and, and there might be a different application there. Uh, but as far as the body and the church, they are withdrawing from it. Uh, and maybe I'm wrong on that. Maybe you, you have a different understanding of that, and I need to be corrected on it. Let me know. Um, but as we look at that text, I can see the hardship in it. And the reason I mention that, what comes to my mind is when we get to chapter 7 in 1 Corinthians, that's coming up. You remember there it says that if a believing spouse has an unbelieving spouse, can they, are they supposed to divorce and separate from them? No, it says you're to stay with them. So there's no withdrawal of fellowship there if one is an unbeliever, okay? Um, and there, there may be other things there that, that would be involved in that situation. So when you start thinking about a husband and a wife, and if it's one of the spouses who's living openly in sin, and they're not repenting, you know, how do you respond? Now, in the example of fornication here, of course, divorce and separation might be involved. But in some of these other sins, it may be that the spouse does not have a spiritual fellowship with them. To further apply that to the family, again, can be complicated. All right, we look a little bit further here. Paul makes application. And he says, I want you to look and think about the principle behind it. And some of this we might miss. And the more that we pay attention to these these three verses right here, 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, I think the more we gain from it. This is one of those texts that's very rich in the things that we, we can certainly apply. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Why, what is their boasting? Well, you're not disciplining this man. You're not doing what you should do. You're essentially boasting that someone can live the way that they are and be a part of you, a part of your fellowship. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. What's he saying here? He says, I want you to celebrate the feast of the Passover as a part of the Christian life. And you need to cast out the leaven, get rid of it, which is what they would do at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover, you have the Passover uh, sacrifice. And then for the, for, uh, the following days, those following um, days after that, about a week, then you were to throw out any kind of leaven. Um, back then, that would include, of course, the, it's, it's talking about the bread here, and a lot of times it was sourdough bread. You'd make the dough, sit it out, and as it would ferment from natural yeast throughout the week, you would then put some more dough with it and make the same bread from the same dough, and that would, that would carry on from time to time. And, but when this period of the year came on, you were to cast it all of it out. All the dough, all the yeast, all of it was to be removed from the, from the home under the old law in Judaism. But New Testament Christianity, as we're keeping this feast, we continue to read right here, Paul says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus died for us. He's the Passover lamb without spot and blemish. So you have the idea of holiness here. Because Christ is holy, the body is to be holy. Keep the feast and celebrate it in the right way. Keep reading right here. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven. Well, you can't celebrate, can you? with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And there's probably much more we can, we can draw from that. But we see here very clearly, Jesus has the Passover lamb without spot and blemish. Christians are to be holy and keeping that feast throughout their life of making sure that within our body as we gather together that there is no leaven, there is no sin in our midst. Because what happens? What happens when you get 
the leaven and the bread, it expands. It, it affects the whole lump of dough. You are to be a new batch of dough. And so for that matter, just this little bit of leaven is going to affect the whole body. That sin does its damage. And then as we finish out chapter 5, we see what must believers learn from judging from Paul's words. I want you to look at this. It's very fascinating. I'm going to go on and give you my observations, and, and I want you to go on and read through the text um, on your own. We'll come and maybe look at a few of the passages specifically. This is what I see here. Christians must judge. We must do this within the church and not associate with any named brother. That's literally what it says in Greek. Anyone named brother, um, called by the name brother, and continues to sin openly. Christians are, are not to judge the outside world because God judges them. And you might say, well, does that mean that I don't recognize that the outside world commits sins? No, Paul is about to do that. He's going to say that. He mentions it. He's going to mention it in chapter 6. So he knows that, but what he's saying here is the condemnation, we don't have any need to go about their condemnation. In fact, Romans 1 says they already know their sins are condemned. And a lot of people know that naturally. They exclude God from their life. They know what they're doing is wrong. The Christians are not to judge, that is to condemn the outside world, because God judges. However, Christians are to judge one another in the church, especially those who are living in sin. Well, let's certainly take a look at that passage real quick. Look at verses 9 through 13. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter. I don't, the translation here in verse 9 and verse 11, some people read this verse right here and says that Paul had read, written a previous Corinthian letter, letter. I don't think you can make that point, and scholars disagree between each other on it. But in Greek, I wrote to you in verse 9 is the same in verse 11. But in verse 11, he's talking about the letter he's writing, and I think this, that's the same thing in verse 9. In fact, in Greek, he doesn't say my letter. I would translate it like this. I wrote to you in this letter. That's, I think that would be the best translation. Not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not with the fornicators, he's saying. Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now, I wrote to you. Again, it's in the past tense. I wrote to you uh, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater or reviler, a drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, purge the evil person from among you appears multiple times, times throughout the book of Deuteronomy. I think one of the verses, as I recall, is Deuteronomy 17 and verse 7. Each time it's talking about the execution of a person within Israel who's committing a sin worthy of death. And in this, the sin brings about death. And yes, we want them to repent. And as some have said, well, this withdrawal, this, this fellowship here, this disfellowship from the sinner shouldn't be a punishment. Well, you go over 2 Corinthians 2, and it actually says, Paul says, the punishment is sufficient. It is a punishment. And yes, we certainly want the individual to repent. Now, here again, as I previously noted, Paul revealed the new way purging out the evil from among you, alluding to that execution in Deuteronomy. And there you have a few of those 
verses right there. All right. How would Christians address, you know, how should Christians address disputes in the church? So I don't think that Paul's just making a, a, a cut right there at the end of chapter 5. So I'm going to go into some in chapter 6 here. And we see here uh, disputes going on in the church, what's going on. Let's, let's take a look at, if you look at verses 1 through 8, and you can read through it on your own. We see this, that saints, he says, have no good reason to take each other to law. They're suing one another. They're going before judges who are unbelievers. And then he's going to note later that, you know these unbelievers, they're living, un, they're unrighteous. These unrighteous judges you're going before. They're living in sin, and yet you're taking matters of one brother against another who are supposed to be holy and a part of the church. And you're going to court before these unrighteous people? Our times have almost become like that um, in the sense of uh, the judges you know, being immoral. But we see this right here. Again, saints have no good reason to go to law. And before the judges are unbelievers. Uh, in fact, Paul's going to say later on, they're, they're practicing sin and they have no part in the eternal kingdom, in the kingdom of God. However, saints who are the church will judge the world and angels. I think that's a fascinating thought thing. You look right there in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, we're going to judge angels one day. We're going to judge the world. And his point is, if you're going to judge the world and you're going to judge angels, why can't you judge yourselves? Why don't you have enough sense to address these issues on your own? Is there not a wise brother who's capable among you of judging between brethren in the church? And it doesn't appear here that there are any elders in this congregation. And then lastly, Paul says, it'd be better if you were just wrong or defrauded or cheated than to act, actually, because you're suing one another, you've, you've all been defeated. You made a bad name for Christ and the church by going before unbelievers. You're not going to really get any, you may get some justice there, but there's nothing real, there's no real benefit in it. You're both defeated in doing this. Now, I've known of situations in the church. I, I know of um, two families who were wronged in a congregation, and the congregation, uh, the elders decided, we're going to take care of this family because the woman uh, in it, uh, she needed the support. For her family, she was a homemaker. She didn't have any other income. But another man in the congregation was wronged, and his family was very, very wealthy. And he had his own income, but the elders didn't offer him anything. But he turned around and sued the elders for not giving him anything. Uh, I went to court over it, and it brought a bad name on him and his family and on the church and on institutions within the church in that area. And on the other side, I, I heard another minister say, you know, I wish the elders there would just go on and pay the man and be, you know, be defrauded and not take this to court. You know, just put an end to it. And it's a sad thing that that kind of thing that happened back there 20 centuries ago is still happening today among the brotherhood. If we knew our Bibles and would apply them, we need to go to one another. And I think the answer to that, if that man and those elders would have sat down with another eldership and another body, another congregation, they could have resolved it. But they didn't do that. If a brother or sister in Christ wrongs you, is that person still a Christian? I've often got that. Well, if they're not a Christian anymore, then I can certainly sue them or take them to court. And that's sometimes what people's thinking is. 
This person has done me wrong, so I can treat them however I want to. But what does the Bible say? It says you still treat them as a brother, even though they've done wrong. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15 teaches us that you still treat them as a brother. Whether they, they are or they're, they're not, whether they've repented, truly repented or not, that's another matter. But Paul gives instruction there in 2 Thessalonians of, of, of someone not keeping God's commands. So why do unbelieving judges have no place in judging between brethren in the church? I think we know why. But I, I love Paul's response here. And I think it's far better than anything I can say. Listen to what Paul says. This is his response to these unrighteous judges. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? They don't have a place in the kingdom that you're a part of. He says, do not be deceived. Evidently, you're deceived if you're suing your brother or sister in Christ and taking them into court. He says, do not be deceived because of these, these judges. And he mentions what kind of things they do in that time. He says, neither the sexually immoral, that's what they're doing, that's what they're practicing, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now, in the ESV, there's a word missing here. It also, a word means men who are effeminate, meaning who are acting like women or pretending to be women. It's there in, in the Greek text. And then the word for men practicing homosexuality, it literally means a man who beds another man. So there, it's not someone saying here, well, I have these same-sex attractions. It's the actual act that's going on here. And it's all condemned as having no part in the kingdom. Then he says, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers. A reviler, anybody who cusses or who profanes or degrades anybody else, that's a reviler. Nor swindlers, that's someone who is an extortioner, will inherit the kingdom of God. So why in the world we will want those kind of people judging within the body of the saints. It makes no sense. And Christians are set apart from the unrighteous. We are to be holy. We are to remove the leaven uh, from our body. And I hope tonight as we see this, we gain a lot of instruction. hope that you note it and that you think about it and apply it. And I think this is a very important message for our elders uh, to note and the deacons coming up and any future elders that you have the courage and boldness to apply what we've read tonight. And so the unrighteous should not judge the righteous. Tonight we get down to our last verse, and I've been using it a lot, verse 11. Paul says to these Christians, he says, Such were some of you, you were like the unbelievers, but now you have changed, you've repented, you've been washed. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And when are you washed in Jesus' name? I think it's very clear he's talking about baptism here. Tonight, if you haven't been baptized into Christ, you can have all your sins washed away. You can be justified, made right before God, and made holy, sanctified. And you can put away those sins that we've read tonight of those who will have no part in the kingdom of God. But you've got to confess your faith and repent, then be baptized. Tonight, if you need prayers and encouragement, we encourage you to come right now while we stand and while we sing. And if you see here, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 5, going into chapter 6. So 1 Corinthians 5 has got 13 verses, and then we, we're going to get in the first 11 verses. And if I were the one who broke down the chapters, this is one of those places where I would stick the beginning of chapter 6 with all of chapter 5. So 
I hope that you'll find this edifying tonight. I find it very fascinating, some of the things we see here. Most families have a plan for rebellion. You have some kind of discipline within the home, um, something that you, you should do. I, I know that a lot of families today, you might not think that, the way sometimes children behave. 